0: We have two readings this morning. The first reading is from Malachi 4, and we read the whole chapter. Malachi 4. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left on them. But for you, Who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the degrees and the laws I gave him at Wereb for all Israel, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Our second reading is Luke chapter 7, verse 1 to 35. Luke 7, 1 to 35. When Jesus has finished saying all this to his people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent turned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and, pray, and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to see, into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he." All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So Jesus went on to say, To what, then, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang adults, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children.
1: Look, if you've not met me before, my name's Peter, I'm one of the pastors here, it's great you're with us, but please definitely keep that part of the Bible open, Luke chapter 7, and uh, let's pray and we'll get stuck straight into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word, and again, it is, it is a light to our path, and we do ask, Father, that we'd listen to it carefully, have ears to hear, that can know it and love it and follow it. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, look, I want to start, to you, start this morning by talking to you about being prejudiced. It's a hard thing actually to talk about being prejudiced because it's seen as such a negative word. Uh, prejudice is a word, you can almost hear it, it's pre-judging, is what the word means, pre-judging. It's when people have a preconceived opinion, a judgment before the facts, often without the facts. It's the idea that you have a fixed mind of what the other person or other thing will be before you get there. Now what most people don't grasp hold of and what makes them so upset about prejudice Is why other people can be so prejudiced while I myself can be so open minded. Uh, And one of the reasons we don't grasp hold of that is because in reality, being prejudiced is normal. It's actually very normal. I would argue that it's very hard to be a normal human being without being prejudiced at all. I would actually argue it's a necessity. It's a necessity because what I mean by this: whenever you come to a new situation in life, a brand new experience, something you haven't had before, whenever you come to something like that, you never ever come as a blank sheet of paper. As you live your life, new facts and new experiences, they're not written on your mind as if your mind was just a blank sheet. No, you write those new facts upon it. It's much more like you have a filing cabinet as a mind, full of categories, of all these different drawers that you put your ideas into and so as you live your life and you you already have a view of life Uh, sometimes people call it a world view uh, a way of understanding and uh, of the world so you're not a blank sheet you always come to new information with some kind of framework that already exists in your mind and you bring that framework to the new bits of experiences and information you come to and then you slot that new bit of information into the framework that you've already got in your mind, which means that you never, ever approach anything like as a blank sheet of paper. You never approach anything without prejudice, because you've always got some prejudgments already made. And look, this can be actually quite helpful. It can be quite negative. We'll get to that soon, but it can be quite helpful. Uh, even like if you're here today and this is the first time you've come to Wagga Evangelical Church, We are glad you're here. It's just great that you've come. You're most welcome. We'd love to see you back. Um, But it will be a new experience for you. And as you come to that experience, you'll have had some prejudgments already made before you walked in the door. You had some preconception that you weren't walking into a cafe, so you didn't come with those kind of expectations. You had some framework that this, this isn't a cinema. You go, well, look, it's, it's a church, so it's about religion. It's going to be something about God. That's one of your, most likely one of your preconceptions, one of your, pre, your prejudices. Um, it's a Christian church, so Jesus is going to be important. Uh, maybe your preconception was we'd have a religious-looking building. Uh, all sorts of prejudgments that you would have, in fact, made, some prejudice you would have had before you walked in, a framework of thinking. And now that you've walked in, though, now, you, now you've got to face the facts of what it actually is. And as you come to experience the facts, the prejudgments can help you understand and get a good grasp of what is happening here. Or on the other token, isn't it, the prejudgments can blind you so you actually don't have a great grasp of what's happening. That's the unpleasant side of prejudice. Uh, when you don't allow the facts to alter your prejudgments Uh, wisdom is actually allowing it it is recognizing that you have prejudice already that you have made some prejudgments but wisdom is allowing the facts to alter your prejudice but if you allow your prejudice to alter the facts that's when it blinds you and it prevents you from seeing the truth so for example like i'm saying coming along to church this morning you might have arrived thinking i know what church is going to be like Uh, it's going to be full of old people." Singing hymns. That's what churches are. And so you turn up here today and you look around and you see, you just happen to see an old person. And perhaps we'll sing the song Amazing Grace. And you, you go home today and someone says, oh, what was church like? And you go, it was like every church, full of old people singing hymns. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a moment when you were so committed to your prejudice that church is full of old people that even though you're sitting amongst All sorts of young people, you don't see it. You're blinded to it by your prejudging, by your prejudice. And I cannot see accurately what it was like. But the person who comes to church and goes, you know, I thought it was going to be like this. But it turned out to be like that. They too had a prejudice, but it didn't blind them because they allowed the facts to update their prejudging. All I'm trying to do, at the moment is to help you understand yourself that we are all prejudiced people and it actually can help us take on new information but it can work against you severely if you won't allow the facts to update your prejudice what we need is a prejudice that won't blind us we need to be able to revise our prejudgments as we come to new facts now, as I say that, you might be now going, yep, 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 I can see that, that's good, that's obvious, I can do that. But gee, can I say, it takes a really significant, deep commitment to the truth. A commitment to the truth that exceeds your commitment to your previously held ideas to do this well. And can I say, that is hard. It is easier when you are younger because you're still forming that framework and how you understand the world. But the older you get, the more committed you are to your own ideas and the more committed you are to your currently held framework, that established framework of thinking. And so the older you get, the more you tend to get into a rut where you say, look, the way I worked it out back then, that's the way it always isn't. You You actually need to be someone who's mature enough to allow your prejudice to be actually informed by the facts of what you see around you. Now, look, I start like that this morning because we're doing an English lesson on prejudice or anything like that. Because in Luke's gospel that we're looking at today, we're going to see prejudice in action. We're going to witness it in other people. We're going to see it done well. And boy, are we going to see it done poorly at times as well. And as we see it, and as it's exposed to us in this chapter, what it will do is expose our own prejudice at the same time. And so we'll need to all be doing prejudice well. And I hope I've already started you to do it well this morning because um, I'm I'm hoping that you've you've all just been able to assimilate some new information about prejudice. I hope I've changed your prejudice about prejudice. That's what I hope I've done so far to help you kind of prejudice is often seen as only ever negative as negative word but it is actually a neutral word because and because it's been done so poorly for so long it's now just a negative word it's a bit like discrimination isn't it discrimination is a neutral word because it's been done so poorly for so long but you know we have that line that you know uh, he's not a very discriminating person by which we mean gee they've got poor taste because i can't discriminate between poor quality and good quality and you can see discrimination is a kind of neutral word that has a positive and a negative element to it, just like prejudice. Okay, that's enough of setting the scene. Come with me to the Bible, Luke chapter 7. In this chapter, what Luke does is show us a number of responses to Jesus, a number of prejudice responses to Jesus, because people have made prejudgments about him before they've met him. And one of the things we're going to see is is Jesus bigger than their prejudgments? That they'll need to revise their judgments? You bet he's going to be bigger. He's always bigger. And of course, we're going to see are they willing to change? Here's the first one look at Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus finished saying these things to all the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard that Jesus heard of Jesus, and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come to heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves you to do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from their house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Did you notice the kind of prejudging here of Jesus by the centurion and the elders of the Jews? Okay, Remember, prejudice is a neutral word. It's a neutral word. But their prejudice here is that they are concerned. The centurion is deeply concerned that Jesus won't bother to come and help. He's a Roman centurion, a commander of 100 troops. He is a leader, actually a powerful enforcer, of the group that is oppressing the Jewish people. And in that prejudice, this Roman centurion and the Jewish elders who are fond of him, they worry that Jesus, as a citizen of the occupied nation, would he be willing? Would he be willing to help those like a centurion who's in command of, a, of, a, of, a, of an organization that's oppressing them? And so the centurion doesn't come himself because of his prejudice he's concerned and he sends some of the jewish leaders hoping to overcome jesus prejudice well what he thinks jesus prejudice might be of him and so these jewish leaders come and they speak highly of the centurion he loves our nation he built our synagogue and they beg jesus to come and look if you've been reading the rest of luke's gospel like we have you know the compassionate of jesus you know his care not just for the jewish nation but for the gentiles he's willing and he goes And this decision of Jesus being willing to go has a profound effect on the prejudice, it seems, of the centurion. He knows now that Jesus is willing, that he's not going to hold, that Jesus' prejudgment of him isn't going to hold him back from coming to help. And so this this is prejudice done well where the centurion goes, I know he's willing, I know he's able to help. Look, I'm a man in power. I know what it's like to be in power, in authority. And so we read in verse 6 that when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent some friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word. And my servant will be healed for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one goes and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does that and and Jesus stops everybody on the walk to teach them about the right response to him. And he says to the people, look at verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to their house and found a servant well. Because what the centurion could see is that Jesus wasn't healing people with some magic tricks. It's not like he had an elixir of life, some magic potion that he was healing people with. What, what this centurion saw that G, was that Jesus had authority an authority far beyond the authority the, soldier, the, the centurion had, far beyond what the Roman emperor had. This, Jesus had authority over creation itself and he just gives a command, a word, not to just to a human being but to an illness and the created order must obey And Jesus is very clear to the crowd. He says, no matter what your preconceived are about me and the kind of authority I have and what the right response is, I tell you, this centurion has the right response. The response of deep trust, which is the response of faith. That's scene one, response one. Come to scene two. This time it's the scene with that widow there. Uh, clearly, a widow with someone whose husband has died, so she's a she's a single woman now. But not only is her husband dead, but we read in this situation that her one and only son has also died, and it's time for the funeral. And while we might not initially see it, gee, this we well, we know it's a hard moment, but this is a harder moment than you'd even re, then. You, then it immediately meets the eye, and the reason we don't see how hard this moment is is because of our prejudice. For we come to this story, this scene, with a good prejudice. It's a prejudgment in our minds that says widows matter. Christianity is where this prejudice comes from because the Bible keeps telling us that God cares for widows and orphans. And so Christians have a pretty good track record actually of looking after widows and orphans. But in many cultures, in many countries, widows and orphans are not so highly valued. In fact, rather than being seen under the special care and affection of God, they are often seen in quite the opposite, under the judgment of God. And even here, in this scene with Jesus here, many of the people going to this funeral may well have been thinking that. For you see, this widow has one child, one son that's now dead, and to the Jewish mind in the first century, the judgment of God could have easily, this is the judgment of God on her. Because all her hope for the future has now been destroyed. Her inheritance in the promised land has God, because when she dies, there'll be no one to carry on her name, no one to carry on her husband's name, no one to occupy the land that was given to them by God, actually passed down through the generations. It's going to be sold and given to the government because there's no inheritor. It's a devastating moment. It's one we don't easily see because our our time in history actually is quite an odd time in history because we live in a time now where more and more couples are choosing not to have any kids at all. There's there's a bit of that going around. But also lots of couples who who, uh, may be choosing to have fewer and fewer children. It's quite an unusual time in history. And why is it like that? Well, uh, fundamentally I think it's because in the Western world people are selfish. And they live for themselves, and they live for the moment, and they live for their pleasures. But back in the first century, in Jesus' day, the Jews did not live like that. They lived for tomorrow, not for today. They, lived, they didn't live for themselves, they lived for the nation. And they lived for the fellowship of God's people. And they didn't live for pleasure, they lived for the inheritance, the inheritance that God gave when He gave the promised land to them. And for every single family, their great pride and joy was their blocking of land that their family had with their name on it. They had received it from God. It was passed down through the generations and so their family would be on this block of land forever. And now for this widow, her future lay in her son and he is now dead. And as he was the only son, so the future, in fact, the eternal future in the promised land in their minds was destroyed. Do you feel the plight that this woman is in? Can you judge it rightly now? And Jesus sees her. And it's interesting, you kind of expect him to have compassion on the dead son, but he has compassion on the woman. And he saves her as he raises her dead son back to life again. But in that scene, as glorious as that moment is, And please, hear the critique of what you live for and hear the greatness of Jesus and just how great his compassion is. But in that scene, I want you to notice the response of the crowd, the funeral crowd who was there. Look very closely at verse 16, because here it is. When Jesus raised a dead boy back to life again, verse 16, they were filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Now, why would they come to that conclusion? To conclude that a great prophet has appeared among us. And then why would they further conclude that God has come to help his people? Why come to that conclusion? It's because of their prejudice. That's why. They're Jewish people. And so they see a man who raises the dead and they think prophet. Because in the Old Testament, the people who raised the dead were the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. They also raise the dead. If you go back and read 1 Kings in particular, 1 Kings 17, you'll see that Elijah raises, of all people, a widow's son. So similar. That's their framework, right? That's their, 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 their worldview, that's their prejudice. And so they, they see Jesus do such a similar thing. They go, oh, it's a prophet. It's one. More than the prophet, it's one, it's one like Elijah. And because it's one like Elijah, they go, God's going to come and visit his people soon. That's because at the end of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of the Old Testament, in that last chapter of the Old Testament that Sal just read for us, you hear that before God comes to visit his people, he is going to send his servant Elijah. And so with that framework and with that worldview and with that prejudice in place, that is how... That is how they coped with the new information that they just saw because no one sees someone dead, raised to life again very regularly, right? New information, that's how they processed it. Processed it with wonder and amazement, that's fantastic. Not yet faith, but at least seeing that God's coming. Which brings us to scene three, which is now the response of John the Baptist. And John's response is doubt. Look at verse 18, look at verse 18. John's disciples told him about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, if you're here today, you're not quite sure who John the Baptist was. It might be a little bit of help to know, a little bit of kind of background about him. It's, It's helpful to know that in his day, I mean, he was huge. He was huge. Huge because people just recognize him clearly as a prophet. That's what they could see in him. Um, Israel in, in John the Baptist, state, Israel, they hadn't had a prophet for 400 years. And when John came and he looked like a prophet and he spoke like a prophet and he was a prophet, then the people knew it. Everyone was like, this is great. And they just, he was huge and they flocked to him. And he spoke to the people and he spoke some strong words. He spoke very hard words actually, true words, but hard words to hear. He came to say to people how they failed God, how they'd failed to give God their, his right place in their life. He pointed out their hypocrisy, their selfishness, their greed. He did it without compromise. He spoke fearlessly. He spoke of their outright rejection of God and it caused a massive stir. And there were many who heard what he said and they were cut to the heart. It rang with The news he spoke rang with such truth and integrity that it shook them out of their apathy. Now, which is often the case in that sometimes we really do need to hear the truth spoke bluntly to us to help us see with clarity. That's John the Baptist. But of course, when someone speaks as bluntly as that, well, not everyone's interested in the truth. And many people found him quite uncomfortable and inconvenient. And some of the leaders in particular who found him so inconvenient, they arrested John and put him in the prison. And by the time you get to Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist has probably been in prison for about a year. And from that prison cell... He hears of all these things that Jesus is doing up in Galilee. No doubt he's amazed by what, he's hear, what he hears. But he's also troubled, which is why he grabs some of his followers and sends them to Jesus to ask, are you the one to come? Or should we expect another? Now what John asks when he says that, if you've been reading the Bible closely, it's surprising. It's surprising because John the Baptist himself had told everybody When he saw Jesus, he actually said he is the one. He would say things like, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one the prophets have spoken about. He is the one we've been waiting for. John said that, so it's odd that he now is asking, are you really the one? It's odd. It's clear John has doubts now. Now, why would he have doubts? You could probably answer that question for me already. It's because of his prejudice. He expects with the coming of the one, the one who would bring in God's kingdom, he expects a time of judgment to arrive. A time when God will be coming with his axe to chop down the tree and put it into the fire. He's expecting the overthrow of the forces of evil. And it's not an out of place prejudice. Because we did read, we did get Sal to read that last chapter of the Old Testament, didn't we? In Malachi chapter 4. Have a look on the screen at verse 1 of Malachi chapter 4. It says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. That day is coming. But that same chapter uh, in Malachi chapter 4, look at that same chapter just a few verses later in verse 5 says, Look, before that day arrives, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, John the Baptist was that Elijah who was to come. He dressed and ate and spoke like Elijah. He was the one sent to prepare the way. And in his mind, surely he's thinking that, well, now's the time where every evildoer will be stubbled. In John's preconceptions or his prejudging or his prejudice, now is the time where God is going to squash all evil. And he's got doubts because he's sitting there in prison under the arrogance of an evil man who will very shortly behead him. Living in a country oppressed by evil people And he is expecting the overthrow of that evil. And yet, what does he hear about Jesus? Oh, he's healing people. He's even healing a Roman centurion servant of all people. Jesus, we don't need you to come to heal. We need you to gather the army. We need to start the revolution. And so he has doubts. And what I want to highlight here for you is that how fantastic the Bible is Because here is John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets that has ever lived. Well, he'd be be said soon, the greatest prophet that ever lived. And what he is doing is he is doubting Jesus. And what I love about the Bible here is its honesty. What strikes you when you do read the Bible for yourself, you will find it to be incredibly honest. That it never smooths over the cracks. It shows you the cracks as they are. It tells you the truth warts and all and here's a great warts and all moment when john the baptist of all people is experiencing doubts and it's great for us to see because you know what it means for you and me that we can be honest that if you're having doubts you can be honest about that it's no shame in admitting it you can own that and i think this is such a helpful scene because it shows us how to face our doubts and do that well and what I want you to notice here is that, well, the reason John the Baptist is doubting is because of his expectations, his prejudgments, his prejudice, that's why. He certainly did have a good picture of the Messiah. He didn't have the full picture. His expectations were perhaps too simplistic. And he used those expectations to prejudge Jesus. On the, and on the basis of his expectations, he was having doubts. And can I say, that is the danger of expectations too, or at least the danger of wrong expectations. And the key of what we need to do is doubt our expectations and question if they are right. This happens so easily today, doesn't it? Um, Somehow, some people have got into their heads that God, if he was really loving, then look, there are certain things that ought to happen in this world. If God was really loving then he ought to keep me healthy and make me happy and remove all my problems. And when that doesn't happen, well, God can't be loving or God's not there. But they've got these great expectations, wrong expectations, but those wrong expectations lead to disappointment in life. And what's the answer to that disappointment? The answer is to understand that your disappointment comes from your prejudice, comes from your expectations. And instead of doubting God, what you ought to do is doubt your expectations. Doubt yourself. And your own prejudices. I think that's what John does. He has his doubts. Caused by his expectations. Caused by his prejudices. And he doesn't write Jesus off. He comes to test his prejudice. He comes to ask. Are you the one? Have I got this right? Are my prejudices correct? He has a sense to doubt his expectations. And to allow the facts. To alter his prejudice. It's prejudices prejudice and done well and so jesus basically says to him look at the facts look at what's happening and so look at chapter 7 verse 22 so he replied to the messengers go back and report to john what you've seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me and jesus is effectively saying john don't just think malachi Remember Isaiah, we've just been preaching for Isaiah last term. Remember Isaiah, the servant, the suffering servant, the capital S servant. Remember Isaiah 35, remember Isaiah 61, Jesus affects, I am the one. And when the followers of John walk away from uh, Jesus here and go back to John, it brings us to our fourth and final scene where we see this time prejudice done very, very poorly. This is the nasty side of prejudice where people don't allow the facts to alter their prejudgments, but instead allow their prejudgments, their prejudice to alter the facts. And so they are blinded by their prejudice. For as these these followers of John walk away, Jesus turns to address the crowd. And he says, look at verse 24. He says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? That is, someone with no backbone? Do you go out to see someone who just told people what they wanted to hear? No, no, no. He says, you went. Did you, did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? He says, no. Those with expensive clothes in, in indulge in luxury and palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, Jesus says. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He was a prophet preparing the way for God to come, just like Malachi had foretold. That is why John, will, Jesus will go on to say that John is the greatest born of woman because he is the last in a long list of prophets who all pointed to Jesus. And he's the greatest because he is the closest to the last one. He is the hinge really between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the one who said, not only is the one coming, but the one is here. But you see, the sad thing is that for that generation of people, that the, that are the crowd following Jesus, John, Jesus wants to show that, gee, when John burst onto the scene, you were amazed and you went out to see a prophet and you flocked to him. But in time you cooled off. And now Jesus, he burst onto the scene and people flocked to him. And Jesus is going to say, you're about to cool off on me too. And Jesus says to the crowd, you were right about John, that he was a prophet, but when you went cool on him and when you went cool on me, it's not good. And so he says in verse 31, look at verse 31, Jesus went on to say, to what can I compare, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? it's a great question he's saying what what are you guys really like what is your generation like we love that question in our day and age don't we you know we're gen x gen y the millennials we've got boomers uh we love to think about what a generation is like Jesus, what's this generation like and get this he says this is what they're like whingers complainers and childish that's what they're like look at verse 32 he says, this is what they're like. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. And we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge and you didn't cry. And Jesus kinda of gets us to imagine you know, kids playing in the marketplace. This is, you know, two groups of kids playing in the marketplace. One group of kids, they're playing weddings. Right, they're playing weddings. There's another group of, group of kids, they're playing funerals. And what's happening is that one group will not cooperate with the other group. And so the childish whinging and complaining and grumbling just goes on and on and on. And Jesus says, that's what you are like. That's your generation. The complainers, the ones who are playing their own game the way they wanted to play it. And when others don't go along with their game, when others won't dance to their tune, they just whinge and complain and grumble. And Jesus says to the crowd, that's your generation. And so, look at verse thirty-three. He explains it. He says, "For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say he's a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a, and a friend of uh, and, a, and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. His point there is, John the Baptist came, and initially they loved him, then they went cool on him, and why? Because he wouldn't dance to their tune." He did not fit their cultural norms, their religious customs. He did not play their game their way, and so they complained. And Jesus came, as different as he was from John, prepared the party, actually, with the outcasts of society, but he too aroused grumbling and complainers because in a different way he didn't sing their song either or dance to their tune. The point being that this generation was so taken up playing the game of life and playing it their way by their own rules that they wouldn't recognize a very different game a far more important game because Jesus and John were dancing to God's tune, singing God's songs in God's way at God's time and yet because of the crowds, that generation's prejudice they cool off on Jesus and refuse to follow him and Jesus says, and rightly says to them, they are so shallow. They are so childish. Fancy living, thinking that God has to dance to my tune. Rather than me as his creature dancing to his tune. That is childish. Which of course makes me come to the end of our our." our uh, Bible talk today and to talk to us about our prejudice. Friends be aware that our generation Gen X or Gen Y, our generations isn't it, Gen X, Gen Y, Millennials, Boomers, wherever you fit in, we are no different. People still expect God to dance to their tune and when he doesn't dance to their tune, they write him off. that is childish that is the kind of prejudice that we all need to be careful of and look if you're here this morning and you're investigating Jesus you're still with us and you've you've come along and we, we love that you're here and you're still investigating Jesus and trying to work out if you're going to follow him or not the danger can I highlight for you is that you come to investigate Jesus and you'll follow him but only follow him on your terms you'll think Jesus is great if he dances to the tune of the life you want to live can I gently say or is it not so gently say that 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 is a childish way to think and evaluate Jesus be wiser with your prejudice and allow the facts of Jesus to shape your judgment of him and of course if you're sitting here today and you already follow Jesus then the same warnings there isn't it that temptation in our lives if you're a follower of jesus to be just as prejudiced and childish to go oh look i know this is what god says but i'll just do i'll live my life my own way i want god to dance to my tune and if he says do this and i want to do be aware of that childish prejudice that can creep back into our lives instead trust like the centurion who gladly recognizes the authority of jesus and put aside his childish ways to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Well, gee, that your prejudice of, of us didn't write us off at all. You know, you saw, you judged us rightly, actually, that we needed help. We needed forgiveness. We needed we need saving. And you sent your son to do that. And Father, we pray for ourselves, that as we respond to you, help us, Father. Yeah, we've got to have a framework of thinking, that help, help it, Father to be a framework that is generous, that is able to take in new information well, that our prejudice wouldn't blind us, that in particular we would see Jesus for who he is and gladly follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.